Connie Morgan with the Free Black Thought Podcast. At FBT, we try to uplift heterodox voices through the Journal of Free Black Thought, Twitter, our compendium, and of course this podcast. Do you consider yourself heterodox? How did you come to be that way? Did you have parents that encouraged you to go against the grain? Do you have a specific sort of red pill moment? Were you raised in a cult? Did you take the road less traveled to where you are now? Or did you just kind of grow up? Or maybe, like my next guest, you're a combination of all of the above. Professor Jacob L. Mackey has definitely led an interesting life. He is an associate professor of classics at Occidental College, where he teaches Greek and Latin languages and literatures. He grew up in between Austin, Texas, and a small village in South India. He is the author of Belief and Cult, Rethinking Roman Religion, and is a founding member of Free Black Thought. I'm honored to be presenting this interview with someone I consider a colleague, mentor, and friend. Oh, and don't forget, there is no such thing as the Black perspective, just Black people with perspectives. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Jake Mackey, welcome to the Free Black Thought Podcast. I recorded with one of your colleagues and fellow founders of Free Black Thought, Mike. It was like, this is weird you know, kind of welcoming you onto the Free Black Thought podcast because it's sort of like I'm welcoming you into your own home since you're one of the founders, but super excited to kind of reveal all all the OG FBT people, as I call them, as I refer to them to my to my husband and sort of shed some light on who are the people behind Free Black Thought? Why did Free Black Thought come to be? And why do we think that we're we're working on important, valuable stuff that's going to change the world, right? Or at least change the country. Maybe change the world is like our 10-year plan, our five-year plan <laughs> is change the country. Yeah. But Jake, you've had a very interesting life and upbringing. And so I think in order to kind of paint a good picture for people as to how you came to land where you are, we got to start back at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Jake is a kid. Can you tell us about your eclectic and you've been heterodox from the beginning whether you wanted to be or not so Mm, why don't you tell us a little bit about that okay yeah well thank you for having me on uh, our podcast connie (laughs) uh it's an honor and a pleasure and uh yeah okay so in the beginning i was born in austin texas to a father who was a philosophy professor who was 20 years older than my mom, who was a philosophy, I think, undergrad when they met, you know, naughty, naughty. And uh, (laughs) we don't do that kind of thing anymore. At least we're not supposed to. And I recommend against it. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) born in Austin, Texas, to uh, a philosophy professor and a soon-to-be PhD uh, who was studying Sanskrit and Vedic culture and uh, Vedanta and the Upanishads and, you know, so basically ancient Indian classical culture. And uh, my father was a philosophy professor who was deeply in the Augustinian tradition, this sort of platonic, neo-platonic brand of Christianity. And so I was brought up between these two worlds Uh, My mother's world of essentially, if you want to say it, call it this, Hinduism, it's a sort of philosophical branch, uh, a philosophical sub, you know, set of philosophies within Hinduism. And then my dad, who represented the sort of very uh, Western, Augustinian, medieval, really kind of 
view of the world. And uh, that's, so that's what where drew, it all started. What drew for them me. to each yeah. other then? What drew well, them to each other? Well, I think from to be perfectly frank, I think what drew my dad to my mom was that she was gorgeous and she thought he was a <laughs> genius. And uh, I think what drew my mom to my dad is that she that he was charismatic and she thought he had this understood the meaning of life. And he was happy to let on that he understood the meaning of life, you know, so it, it wasn't that she had been misled or was confused, like he broadcast that <laughs> okay. pretty, pretty well. But then she quickly, she soon figured out that he did not have the meaning of life and she went looking for it elsewhere and she began to look in the East and uh, as so many hippies did, right, in the late 60s, early 70s, that was my mom, you know, a hippie. And so she found something that seemed to her to to solve all the questions that Western philosophy couldn't solve, that Kant couldn't solve, that um, uh, Christian thought couldn't solve. And so she started taking me and my sister to India when I was I was five. My sister was like two. And so, yeah, so I grew up partly in India on this ashram where we had a guru who sort of taught and it's more than taught. He also tried to like initiate his disciples into a form of non-dualism called Advaita or Advaita Vedanta. Advaita means non-dualism. So the idea is there's no physical world. All that really exists is Atman, like soul, or as they also like to say, existence, consciousness, bliss. That's all that really is. All that really is, is, is. You know, mm -hmm. existence, which is pure consciousness, consciousness without an object, because there's no subject object uh, dichotomy. That's an illusion. And all there is is bliss, uh, because it's in the context of a, the subject object dichotomy that unhappiness is comes into being. So anyway, that's getting off a little bit into the weeds. But that's what I grew up with on the ashram in India. And then back home in Texas uh, with my dad, I would was surrounded by everything, you know, everything from the ancient philosophy, Plato, Aristotle, up through, he was also a Kierkegaardian, you know, he was a, his two, he had two books on Kierkegaard. And so if you want to think of it this way, he was something of an existentialist. So I had this, you know, this father who could sort of embody 2000 years of Western philosophy and this mother who was exposing me to this deep, rich vein of Indian philosophy. And that pretty much like fucked me up <laughs> really that was so, yeah that so, was a pretty good mind fuck yeah so when you which did she live in india and she was you'd visit her or you guys would just take long trips there we would take long trips she didn't move there till i was an adult when she divorced my dad went like in 90 1991 something like that yeah. So your dad um, would come to India too, or no, this was just something you would just do with your mom? Just with mom, yeah. But dad, your parents were together. Yeah, they were together. They shouldn't have been, <laughs> but they stayed together until 91 or so, yeah. They shouldn't have been, though. It was like clear from for years and years and years that it wasn't working, you know, but they just stuck it out. And your dad didn't but, have a problem with you getting, or he didn't, he felt like he didn't have a choice or what? I, you know, I don't know. I think, I think there might have been a, some, a certain amount of cowardice, like he didn't have the courage to confront her and stop it, say, what the heck are you doing every year taking my kids off to India? And then they come back and they've lost weight there. They have lice. <laughs> they typically Ooh. have, they typically have intestinal parasites like worms and stuff. Mm -hmm. 
sometimes i mean my sister got near nearly died there she got jaundiced and you know oh my gosh yeah nearly died and there was no, there was no at that time i mean it was a tiny village in south india there was no good medical care for miles and miles you know yeah i think part of it was he was just afraid of confrontation part of it was he just figured well what the heck it can't hurt i mean i guess it can't hurt <laughs> whatever you know they're having an mm-hmm. experience and that is true i mean we had an experience and i would not change it but uh yeah so he was not down with it at all uh, he thought he thought the philosophy was total bullshit the non-dualism he didn't buy that and he certainly didn't buy the idea that you needed to have a guru and a guru relationship to discover the truth you know um you know he thought you did that by uh whatever meditating on god by philosophical sort of meditations on the nature of god his final book was called faith order understanding proofs of god's existence in the augustinian tradition and the way he saw these medieval proofs of god's existence he saw them as a form of contemplative, meditative, uh, sort of dwelling on God and being with God as close as a human being could get to being with God, you know, was mm-hmm. through this this exercise of reason taken to its sort of in its one of its highest instantiations, which is, you know, a, the contemplation of these incredibly complex um, and rigorous proofs of God's existence. So anyway, he was a kind of Christian mystic, although it was like a rational mysticism, you know what I mean? Mm. And then my mom was, you know, our, where we lived on this ashram, that was much more just mystical mysticism, although it had a, it had a heavy dose of sort of rationality too. There were arguments. You were supposed to understand things through argument, not just through smoking a joint and having a sort of feeling. Anyway, that may be all too much information, but I was brought up in these two worlds that are that were deeply incommensurate. Can't like sort of say I'm going to sort of do both uh, at once. You sort of had to pick one and I figured one of these, well, one of them or neither of them is the truth. And that fucked me up for a, a long time, maybe 15 years, like just completely knocked me off course and incapacitated me and made me made it so that I couldn't actually do anything. When did you become a little philosopher? When did you realize my parents are both teaching me or telling me, training mm-hmm. me up in these two different philosophies? Mm-hmm. They're the two most important people in your life. They're mom yeah, and dad, yeah. right? Exactly. They're your teachers and they're both yeah. pulling you in these opposite directions. When did that, when was that starting to sink in? How old were you when that happened? I think it sunk in really early, but I think uh, it didn't become something that I could truly think through a series of propositions till I was about 13, maybe, you know, about my son's age. And That's still uh, pretty young. I mean, those are big topics for a 13 year old. Yeah. And I'm, I was not making good sense of them at the time at all. You know what I mean? But I was trying to get it, <laughs> mm-hmm. trying to understand. And uh, it didn't take long before I, my head exploded, you know, and I became a complete sort of did like just, I dropped out around the age of 15, 16. I uh, completely checked out, like quit going to school, didn't go to high school, you know, started smoking dope, drinking, hanging out with school skate punks <laughs> you know did your, parents, just, were, did your parents try to try to get you to pick a side or were they like we each have our own way you choose how did that work my mom was the evangelist you know she was made it very clear that uh there was only one correct path to the truth to enlightenment and that was through the guru 
So she's the one who laid the heavy trip on me. My dad was smart. I mean, he was 20 years older. He'd already raised two sons. I have two much older brothers, 18 years, 20 years Mm -hmm. older than me. He had already raised these kids. He knew that the, the smart parent does not apply pressure, but just sits back and makes him or herself available for questions and mm. makes him or herself available as a source of support. So he never pushed anything on me at all. And he knew that eventually when my mom pushed too hard, I would come running to him. And that is what happened. You know, mm. um, My mom freaked me out basically by telling me that this guru was essentially God and that was the truth and that, you know, it was his way or uh, sort of the equivalent of damnation. You know what I mean? It was the worst thing that could happen to a soul in that sort of system. It's not hell, but you know, it's what it's just rebirth and a shitty rebirth because it's a, it's a, they believe in reincarnation in that system. But so anyway, my, yeah, my mom pushed hard, my dad soft pedaled and I ran to my dad at some point, you know, but I also just became a total degenerate fuck up for a long time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just like moved out of the house, didn't finish uh, high school just got a really marginal job and just basically was on the like underground sort of punk scene in Austin. And just, it was an essentially a kind of nihilistic space, you know, Mm -hmm. like thinking that I couldn't accept what had been offered as the truth. I could not accept it. And I didn't see a way around it. I felt like this black sheep who was doomed a kind of a prodigal son you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The story yeah. of the prodigal son. Yeah. Um, and so I was doing the prodigal son routine, going out and, you know, just blowing it all on what did bad your parents, living. What did your parents think about that? Well, my mom was, she had the sort of Puritan thing going and she was very dis- upset about it. And at some point thought she had lost me. You know, she, I've lost mm-hmm. my son. I've lost one child. My dad, you know, he had been an adult in the hippie era. He was a pretty subversive guy, to be honest. I mean, um, he was a hippie and he liked encouraging his children to be counterculture types. So he actually thought Mm -hmm. it was awesome. (laughs) Like he would have been, he would have been upset with me if I had become like a a preppy. That's the word we used to use back then. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Like if I had worn like a Izod shirt and (laughs) that kind of thing, he would have been really upset, but he liked that I had a mohawk and listen to punk rock and like he approved you know he liked to encourage his kids to drop out drop okay, out so i did how long were you in this kind of like punk rock nihilist state of being before you moved on to something else and then what did you move on to from there till i was about um that lasted till i was about uh 22 or so 22 so really not that long it was like no, it a five year period mm-hmm, but you know mm-hmm. But, you know, I nearly died from sort of drinking too much. Like, basically, I was having 15 to 20 drinks a day, had become extremely unhealthy. Like, I was living, smoking a pack a day. I mean, you know, I was just hanging out with people who were all hurtling towards the grave. (laughs) And many of them are dead. Many of the people I was hanging out with are dead now, you know. And, yeah, at some point, I somehow sobered up. And I also somehow it had all, I'd been percolating the whole thing in the back of my mind and uh, it, this whole time. And what happened is I decided at some point I decided I am the prodigal son and it is time for me to go home because the prodigal son does go home. Right. Right. 
And so what I did is I went back to India in 1994, clean and sober. I'd been sober for like a year. Was there some kind of moment that pushed you to that point, an aha kind of light bulb, or was it just a gradual, and one day you were just sober and you were going back to India? What what forced me to it is that I had, uh, what forced me to it is that I was drinking so much that I was having like heart palpitations and I thought I was going to die and I would like check into the emergency room because my heart palpitations would be so bad wow. and stuff like that. And so I had to stop drinking, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. once you stop drinking, you, um, you uh, become much more lucid and you get back in touch with your emotions, which you've been squelching mm. this whole time. And what happened is it just sort of, I just sort of had this emotional rebel, like I quit resisting. I just had this, and I also felt sort of saved. Like I felt like someone had saved me because I had come so close to what I thought was death. You know, physically I looked horrible. If you had seen me, I was all puffy, but also really skinny. Um, I was like passing blood, <laughs> you know, things Ugh. you don't necessarily want to know about. So I thought <laughs> I was near death and I felt like I'd been saved. And I felt like the I had two options. One was that it was my dad's highly intellectualized God who had done it. Or the other was that it was this guru that I had actually grown up touching his feet in the morning as a form of greeting had done it, you know? The mm-hmm. guru was the much more immediate godlike figure for me than my dad's like Augustinian god who's lost in a haze of rational uh, argumentation. Um, so I went back to India thinking that I owed everything to this guru and... Uh, Feeling ready At this to, point, your mom was living there? Yeah, my mom was living there mm-hmm. permanently, had a house there. And I went back and uh, I saw the guru and I sat and I listened to the guru. And I realized he's a fucking senile old man. By that point, he'd become senile. And mm-hmm. I could see that. And I thought anyone who is the representative of the truth with a capital T on earth can't be going senile. And also mm-hmm. half of what he said was just obvious bullshit. And, uh, I came out of that. That was a tremendous, like emotional experience. The realization that he was full, that it was, the whole thing was full of shit and bullshit. Mm. That after that trip, I let it all go. I like Mm. basically completely let it go, you know, Mm. because I could just see that this is just a frail old man working in a certain tradition, which is a venerable, wonderful tradition. Uh, but it's not the truth. It's in fact, it's nonsense. It's not, mm-hmm. it's just, it just doesn't make any sense. And so, um, so I left India and just, it just sort of cascaded down on me in waves of realization that all that stuff I'd been worried about for all those years was not, was bullshit. And I could just let it go again. Wonderful, beautiful tradition. I love teaching the Bhagavad Gita, which is a core text in that tradition, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not the truth, and it's not, it's you know, it, you know, it's not something I'm going to commit myself to religiously, and so that was a weight off. And then I turned towards my father, and it's dawned on me because again, I'm like older now, and I'm sober, <laughs> and I'm able to think <laughs> things through. And I suddenly realized that his Augustinian Christianity, his Neoplatonic Christianity, was itself actually, um, in a sense, structurally the same or very similar to the uh, Advaita, the non-dualism of the Indian tradition 
Um, I mean, ultimately, it posits that God is sort of the ground of all being, that uh, in some sense, everything that's not God is what it is insofar as it is less real than God, you know, <laughs> and mm-hmm. like things like evil are like a negation of being, you know, so it, it really isn't ultimately uh, it's, it's a system that doesn't love the material world, you know, that sees the material world as a kind of emanation of God. I mean, it was spoken into existence by God, but mm-hmm. really our goal is to get back to this heavenly city, which is beyond sort of these gross material realities. And it's, it's very, uh, um, there's a kind of there's a sort of non-dualism to this to that system to this platonic system where they're just being God and being are one and they're the only thing that's really real in some sense. Yeah, so I'm not ex- I'm not expressing it as well as I might, but I sort of realized <laughs> that, that my dad's sort of Augustinian Christianity was in some way was a close kin to this Advaita, this Indian stuff, and I also turned away from that and I embraced what I think I was born to be, which is a really hardcore sort of materialist, you know? I think everything in the universe makes sense in terms of, you know, things like evolution (laughs) and in terms of physical laws. I find actually understanding the world in that way to be extremely satisfying. It's not um, comforting, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's intellectually satisfying. And it also... I think it's comforting in the sense that it allows me to acknowledge my true place in the created order, which is no place at all. I mean, <laughs> I'm just this, I'm this momentary blip of consciousness and it feels like something to be me and it's going to feel like something to be me for 70 or 80 years. And then that'll be gone. And I need to, that's poignant and beautiful. And I need to latch on to every last moment of conscious experience that I can and suck the juice out of it. You know, it's, this is all we've got. There's nothing, there's no, there's no eternal future waiting for me either in Indian system or in a Western system. You know, it's a, it's this, it's it's like a, I'm like a flower, not, not near as pretty, but I'm like a flower that (laughs) bloomed after a rainstorm and it's going to last for a few brief hours to be enjoyed and, in my case, to do some enjoying, and then it's going to wither, you know, and that's it. And that's okay. Yeah. You're so at anyway, peace with what, that. Very much so. Okay. So you come back to the United States. Yeah. You're like, mom's wrong. Dad's wrong. Clean and sober <laughs> now. I'm not a punk rocker. Yeah, what what came of... next? I mean, I know you'll always be a punk rocker at, yeah, your, you can't, at your yeah. soul, in your in your heart. <clears throat> uh, so th- then, what came next? Because you're a, you're a high school dropout. Now you're uh-huh. now you have a PhD. What happened well, in between? <laughs> yeah, I, it was like a slow c- climb back up. I mean, I worked at Whole Foods Market, which is a very supportive and wonderful place to work. Made a lot of good friends while there. Slowly, was able to get into community college built up my courage. I was terrified of school, got into community college, did well, earned enough credits to transfer to UT Austin. All I knew is that I wanted to study the kind of culture that I had rejected in both mm. my from both my parents. You know what I mean? I wanted to study it uh, from a, objectively from a distance. You know, I didn't want to be uh, yeah. on, on an ashram and I did not want to commit myself to an Augustinian form of 
Neoplatonic Christianity, but I wanted to study that stuff because it was beautiful and fascinating and amazing. And what a towering creation of the human mind, you know? And so I wanted to study it. And so that took me into philosophy and classics, so the ancient Greeks and Romans and their languages and literature. And it was just, a, it was a slow, slow sort of growth process. And so by the time I'm 27, I'm finally enrolled at UT Austin. From there, it would just snowballed quick because I did really well, got scholarships for grad school, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So you actually went when you were younger than I thought. I thought that hmm. perhaps you hadn't started your undergrad or completed your undergrad till you were like into your 30s. Yeah, I was like was, 31 or two, 31, I guess, when I completed. When you finished. Undergrad, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but you started in your 20s. Okay. We're and still then, working full time, you know, et cetera. You were living a very normal life at that point, right? Working, putting oh, yeah. yourself through school. Yeah. At this point, what was kind of your political philosophy? What was your oh, ideology I mean, I, there? I was, I still had a hangover from my anarchism of my punk rock days, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I was like vehemently anti-government when I was a punk. It was the Reagan era. I fucking hated Ronald Reagan. Um, mm -hmm. I thought our government was fucked and evil and wicked and. But you weren't really a libertarian either, right? Not at all. No, not at all. Yeah. Cause at the time I would have associated that with a kind of right wing you know, like libertarians, I mean, really, it's a horseshoe thing, right? But I was sort of like a left anarchist, you know? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Like I, I was on probation when I was like 17, 18. And I remember in my final meeting with my probation officer, they always ask you a, like a question about your future plans. And I told them my plans were to destroy the government, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, at the time, I, I didn't realize how close that brought me to like Grover Norquist at the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because <laughs> for me, it was much more to, and that I would then we would then institute like a leftist utopia, you know, where we would mm -hmm. all like get naked and hug and grow marijuana and collectively raise children or something. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, like basically what I now realize is just like Chaz Chop, you know? <laughs> yes, my home <laughs> like, state. Well, yeah, exactly. Now I realize like, yeah, okay, that has now been tried and look how it turns out. It's jazz chop. Anyway, that's why I kind of just like slowly came down off of that and sort of landed at being like a New Deal liberal, you know, because that's what my dad was. And he sort of really, in, he had lived through the Depression and World War II. You know, he was an older guy and he really inculcated in me this like sense of something really great about America and especially about America in that era, coming through the Depression, FDR, mm -hmm. the New Deal, the, the rallying eventually for world, you know, for the war, right? Even after ignoring right. everything for a while, uh, you know, et cetera. He had like inculcated in me the sense of sort of the greatness of what America could be, you know? Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and really, I, even as much as I hate, you know, whatever, I'm going to destroy the government. On some level, I was always actually this kind of idealist about America and what we could do together, you know, if we just had whatever, the political will, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. I believe you've told me before that through your graduate studies is where you met your wife. She yeah. was also, yeah. you met your wife and, you went from being this like anarchist, let's get naked and hug, marrying, <laughs> settle down, having a couple uh -huh. of kids, 
Would uh-huh. your younger self have just been absolutely disgusted? <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the, my younger self did things like put tattoos on me in places that are not hideable, like see, mm-hmm. they're on my hand mm-hmm. and stuff. And yeah. at the time, I explicitly said, if I ever become the kind of person who is scandalized by having this tattoo publicly visible, then I will deserve it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I was basically like trying to punish a possible future fuddy-duddy conservative Jake. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That guy mm-hmm. never arrived. Yeah. In fact, I just was talking to a tattoo artist about a new tattoo the other day. So, yeah. Take the man out of the punk rock scene, but you can't take the punk rock out of the man. Is that <laughs> you still have a itching to get tattoos and you've had long <laughs> hair when I met you. You have short mm-hmm. hair now, but. Mm-hmm. So some of those some of those habits have never will mm-hmm. will never go away. But you're a New Deal liberal. You get married. You have a couple of kids. Yeah, and it's it's worth like stating like to really bring it all home. Like at the time that I got married, I mean, met my now wife. We met in grad school in 2007. It's like the beginning of the Obama era, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Obama gave his big speech at the DNC in 2004, right? And then got himself elected to the Senate. And then 2007, he's clearly going to be running. He's running for president, right? So yeah, that's when we met and we, she's black, I'm white. We really, we were snowed. I mean, we really bought into this idea that we're moving into a post-racial era and Mm -hmm. that we represent that in a sense, that our relationship represents that. And that our children will represent that, and that we that we represent the highest aspirations of our parents. You know, her parents mm-hmm. are in their eighties. I mean, they grew up and lived in the Jim Crow South. In fact, they were not even that excited to have her dating a white guy. To be honest, <laughs> uh, my are. mom was my mom was much more excited. My because for my mom, you know, all her life she's a hippie. She's been like idolizing MLK, and then for her son to like be dating a black woman was like her like white liberal wet dream come true, you know, but uh, <laughs> for my wife's parents, they were not as excited, but then once we, they, we met, you know, we loved each other. We were, we had this Obama, we were totally bought in. It's a whole new world, especially when he won, you know, it was just like mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. world has changed. Amer- everything is different. America has changed. It's all rainbows and puppy dogs from here on yeah. out. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what was, what he promised, right? He promised yeah. that's what he said would happen. You know, I know that I grew up I'm a product of a interracial marriage. I grew up with my dad truly believing and saying that probably I would get to see a black president, but he wouldn't. Wow. And of course it happened actually when he was pretty young. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't yeah. have to be an old man really to see it to see it happen. So I totally get this optimism even if you didn't vote for the guy particularly the first time right well he wasn't my guy but things are changing and this happened really quick from Mm -hmm. the end of the civil war to having a black president Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. having a having a minority president Mm -hmm. in any country rare thing so yeah yeah. you're completely bought in completely hope hopeful completely overjoyed Getting but a PhD, you know, like all these things are coming together, getting married, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. everything everything was <clears throat> puppies and rainbows and roses for you, really. Yeah, uh, it was, actually. It yeah. really was, like, a great time, I think. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but now, fast forward, 
to, yeah. to 2020, Obama is no longer the president. And we can we we don't have to, but we can talk a little bit about if you felt any kind of a way, if you felt like the promises and the expectations that you had were met or not during mm-hmm. his presidency. But now you're you're one of the fat in 2020. George mm-hmm. Floyd happens. Mm-hmm. BLM already existed, of course, but mm-hmm. something really did. Even though we had Michael Brown and um, Trayvon Martin and and these other incidents before George Floyd, George Floyd just you know, as we all know, like lit a lit a match. Mm-hmm. The racial conversations just I don't know if they changed, but they got everything was elevated, hotter, more mm-hmm. desperate. People seem to be on all on all spectrums. And you're, you're observing all this, you're taking all this in. And I believe what happened was you started to form what is now the compendium on free black Mm -hmm. lives. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. And I guess it was me uh, who started first started to like collect writings by, you know, black authors that were out, that were going against the grain of what was being presented by the, like the New York times and the major media, you know? Um, was that, that something you sought out before the George Floyd? Were you already no. kind of a, no? So no. what made you start looking? <laughs> what, what made you start looking for these these voices? So if you had talked to me in two thousand eighteen, two thousand, you know, whatever, I would have just been like, huh? I would have just been happily going along with whatever I was being told by, you know, the New York Times and black studies department, you know what I mean? At my school, mm-hmm. you know, like I would have just, whatever the narrative that the good people buy into, I buy, I would have bought into it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, there's, I think uh, I could say there's a couple things that changed me. One was, um, how, how do I want to put this to be, say it just right. I saw that there was something nihilistic and destructive about the sort of identitarian left um, I had never been like super into the identitarian left. You know, that just wasn't my thing. I've always been like an older, old school kind of liberal, but uh, I didn't care that much about it. But uh, what I saw, I did a summer teaching gig at my school um, in 2019, summer of 2019, right? The summer before George Floyd. And mm-hmm. the whole idea of this thing was to bring students who had just been admitted to this to our college to the campus so they've just graduated high school they come to campus it's mainly students of color it's like preferentially picks you know those students and invites them about 100 students you know so me and my colleagues we devised a curriculum etc cetera, etc cetera, but there was this counter curriculum that was taught by the the RAs and the TAs, the, res- the whatever, residential assistant mm-hmm. advisors, residential advisors and the teaching assistants. And the, those guys were graduates of the older, of the previous years. They had been in the previous summers where they had been taught basically just like insane sort of, you know, Angela Davis kind of blow everything up, Asada Shakur <laughs> kind of shoot shoot everyone and blow everything up and kill the pigs kind of radicalism as mm-hmm. as their introductory uh, experience to my college. And, you know, they had been taught that the college sits on stolen land and, you know, it's stolen from the Native Americans and that, you know, the college is systematically racist, white supremacist institution, even though it's actually has this 
great history of long before other schools. It was co-ed and it was very like when Harvard was not admitting like even so much as like Jews, mm-hmm. <laughs> our, my school was, it was like, had, you know, black and uh, Latino. And what, so it's like one of the least white supremacist institutions on earth. These students, these RAs and TAs teaching this counter curriculum, I saw what they did to these poor kids. And I realized that was really when I saw face to face, just how destructive and nihilistic a certain kind of leftism is. And what I, here's, here's an, one of the things that just always sticks with me. It's my sort of favorite story from it because it so encapsulates it so beautifully. There's this one student, a uh, young black guy, 17, 18 years old, just graduated high school, you know, handsome, tall, brilliant, charismatic, every, he's the center of attention at all times. Mm-hmm. Everyone loves him you know, couldn't be a happier, go more happy-go-lucky guy, et cetera, et cetera. You know, he comes up to me like halfway through the, uh, the, the summer semester and he like pulls me aside and he's like, professor, professor, I just, I just, I just have to ask you, like, I have never met people so liberal in all my life. Like what is going <laughs> on here? And it's because he's been, after our teaching is done They go back to the dorm and these RAs and TAs just pump them full of propaganda. And uh, he's he's like, he's never encountered this stuff, you know? Where was he from? Yeah, I should should mention, he's like from a wealthy Florida suburb, you know? Mm. And uh, it just, it wasn't part of his wealthy Florida suburb (laughs) upbringing. It wasn't Mm -hmm. something his parents were into. And this was him, this was in California. He's in LA now. And he's in LA now, yep. Yeah. And I said, yeah, you know, this is, you know, it's a college campus. You're going to hear all sorts of different perspectives and whatnot. And, you know, just keep your head, think things through and listen, talk to your parents. I'm sure your parents have heard these kind of perspectives and theories before, and they'll have wisdom for you. And come to me if you ever, my door is always open. We can talk things through. And he was like, okay, cool. You know, thanks. And I kind of thought, okay, that's, that's cool. Well, no, no more than two semesters later, this previously happy, popular, brilliant kid it writes this just heartbreaking editorial in the student paper where he says that to be black on Occidental College campus is a trauma. And he talks about how, it, like, how uh, isolating it is and how racist it is and he gives some examples and like one example is that he was celebrating a basketball game win with some friends of his and some white people who were walking by stopped and looked over at them. You know, he was and like, it's traumatic. Yeah. And so I was like waiting in the essay, I was like waiting for the horrible things. Like someone had put a noose in his locker, you know I mean? Like I'm like, like something. Yeah. Someone's like, but it was like these things that, yeah, they, some people were walking by and they saw a group of college kids celebrating. Of course, they're going to look and wonder what's going on. I mean, right. I would. I mean, yeah. anyways, like, but the, the worst part was, and I'm sure, I'm, you know, Mike, I talk to black students who do tell me they experience genuine racism. I don't not, I'm not saying it's not there. What I'm saying is that to, to have brainwashed him into say, repeating all these, it's all this copy pasta about what a trauma it is to be black and at this white supremacist institution. Yeah. That kind of stuff. And uh, it broke my fucking heart and all I could see, all I could, 
just my own son just kept flashing before uh, my eyes. And I was thinking, because my kid is brilliant, handsome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he he's is, all he's, those things. Folks, he's charismatic. he's not just saying that because it's a son. I've seen the pictures. He has a very yeah, cute kid. He's a very good looking guy. And he's, you know, popular. Everyone loves him. And to think of like his sort of happiness and his, he loves learning. To think of like getting on a campus, being so happy to be able to learn and like making all these friends and then su- and then these fucking people talk you into interpreting that experience as trauma they mm-hmm. talk you into interpreting the fulfillment of your intellectual dreams and your and your uh, rich successful social life they talk you into interpreting that as a trauma that is like that is that's abusive that's mm-hmm. that's abusive and uh nihilism you know it's it's these there's a certain subset of professors and they're aided and abetted by these these goggle-eyed like well they're pawns they're students that these professors have turned into their pawns who apply the peer pressure to the other black students to get them to be equally as radical you know you're not and we i've ha- i have a student actually who just left the school this semester who uh, was told that he was not black because of, you know, he wasn't like fully, he wasn't marching along fully buying. I mean, this is what they do. So that you have the professors on the one hand telling you the only way to be black is to be, you know, sort of Angela Davis style radical. And then it's then the social pressure from the the kids who are basically the underlings, the henchmen of these professors who are ahead of you in their, in a class, right. Older than you um, sort of pressuring you. We've had, we've had more than one black student who has left the school telling us that it was because this kind of thing was so disgusting to them. Like such, it was such an unfriendly, like negative, nasty environment. Yeah. Um, Did you ever talk to the young man who wrote, who wrote the piece after the fact? You know, I was actually too heartbroken to bring that up with him because I just didn't know how I would even broach it with him. Like, what's a white guy going to do? I'm going to be like, so I see that you think it's a, you feel that it's a trauma to be here. Like, how am I going to do that? So in, instead a black colleague of mine did that, took him aside. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and that's much more appropriate, right? Because otherwise it's just some white dude being like, there's no racism. Don't feel that way. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's not, <laughs> But she took him aside and was like, listen, man, <laughs> like, let's talk. Are there problems? Yes, there are. Is there racism? Oh, yes, there is. Um, are you going to experience? Yes, you are. Uh, you know, but is is the Afro-pessimist uh, theory, does, is that what is, uh, is that what matches reality, right? Do we live in an Afro-pessimist world where your every moment is a trauma? Um, no. And like, let's just you know, take a deep breath (laughs) and sort of get real. And so she actually pulled him out of it. And he took another class of mine later. She pulled him out of it. So he left that he's back to his normal self or how you met him originally. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what changed. Like, I I don't know what kind of journey he went on. I don't know his whole journey, you know, Yeah. but I'm sure that he's not the sort of innocent, bright eyed, bushy tailed kid he was when he came to campus. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, But he's not where he was when he wrote that, that op-ed, you know, and that's in large part to, you know, a colleague of mine who was able Mm -hmm. to pull him aside and say, let's talk. So thank God for that. Right. The basic idea is like, I realized like these people 
they want to do that to people. You know what I mean? Like to them, that's a success, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think that they would like nothing better than to do that to my kids, you know? And so now we could maybe switch to George, the George Floyd thing. So not a year later, right? George Floyd happens. And this, the Afro-pessimist discourse that I had worried about in this one context on my campus with this. And by the way, there's a million other little stories around that whole experience. There was an, a, La, a Latino, Latina, I guess everyone would say Latinx now, <laughs> affinity group formed. And there was one girl who was not allowed in because her hair was blonde. And they told her, don't you even think about joining the, but it's like, she's like, well, I mean, I'm a Latina, like what the hell? Yeah. But anyway, it was, it was just this kind of thing, like, you know, this wow. identitarian nonsense on and on and on. So 2020 comes and suddenly what I had gone through at a, on a small scale on my campus in 2019 with like Afro-pessimism and identitarianism gone wild, that suddenly becomes what's happening in the nation, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, to be honest, I kind of panicked and I became really worried for my kids and I became really worried what kind of messages they were going to be getting. I was worried what was going to, here we are, we're in COVID lockdown. Right. And we're getting nothing but the darkest, most sort of Afro-pessimist kind of uh, messaging as a result of the, the horrifying George Floyd murder. And the messaging was so, what's the word? monotonous right like mm -hmm. everyone was united around a certain sort of story and message and the message was you know that the police are out hunting and killing black people and yeah. uh, there's no that black people ha actually in a sense have no place in this country you know what i mean like mm -hmm. this is not actually their home this is a country that essentially wants them dead you know i mean these are the messages that were going out and i became really frightened for my kids and what was going to happen to them what kind of things would they internalize? So I, I guess I started went I went looking for black people who were saying something else, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. so, who were not Nicole Hannah Jones. You know what I mean? Right. Um, who had another perspective, and it doesn't mean they had to be like George Floyd got what he deserved or something like <laughs> that. And God knows there were people who were saying that shit, you know. Mm -hmm. But that was not what I wanted to hear. What I wanted to hear was some fucking sanity, you know? Yeah. And um, so, yeah, that's when I began to actually start to collect, like, everything I read that was just different, you know? And that's when I How really... How did you go... Because you weren't really seeking this out beforehand, did you literally just type into Google alternative perspective on no, alternative was, race I, theory? <laughs> no, well, you know, actually, may, there may have been a little of that because I had to do sort of... During that summer of 2019, I had to give myself a crash course on things like decoloniality. I had not really known decoloniality before. Um, that was a new one for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But uh, I knew post-colonialism. That was like where my grad school uh, education yeah, ended yeah. with post-colonialism. But decolonialism, that was new. So, And then I realized like it's fanon and stuff that's been warmed over and redressed re up. Uh, no, so I, I just I was able to access things that I already knew about. So, okay. like I, I had like I was I, at the time I had been a big fan of Sam Harris for a while, and uh, okay. I had heard Glenn Lowry on Sam Harris, mm -hmm. and I was like, mm -hmm. oh, that guy was interesting, and so I went and chased him down. Somewhere I had bumped into Coleman Hughes, and so I like I was like, I need to go see what that guy's up to. You know what I mean? Okay, and, okay. Or or I had uh, already I think I had already gotten into Thomas Chatterton Williams because mm -hmm. actually his sort of post racial 
he sort of rejected race after his kids were born. Mm-hmm. That story had already resonated with me because yeah. when my kids came out, like I fully expected, I was like, I am going to have some black babies. And <laughs> the baby, and like that was what I was like, where are my African American babies? My, but my babies defied racial categorization, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You look at them and you're just like, well, kind well, of you're, ambiguous. you're, you're really a, sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're just an ambiguous, beautiful little human that could be mm-hmm. interpreted in all sorts of different ways. And so anyway, my experience with children having kids was paralleled William Chatter Thomas Chatterton Williams. And so anyway, I just went and sought out folks like that who I sort of already knew about for one re- one way or another, you know. And, but yeah. then I kept digging deeper and deeper and then I realized there's this just this massive massive sort of undiscovered underground it's not even an underground though because it's not organized there's just this these spread out disparate not in communication with each other black people who have widely divergent views on everything right and they Mm -hmm. all you can find hundreds of people who go against the convenient charles blow nicole hannah jones narrative and i just began to seek them out and put them together and that actually like that's how then the rest of us in the organization all met each other too, right? And that was um, just kind of a passion project. You just had like a, a Word doc that you were just plugging things in. Well, that was just me. That That's like before there's any organization. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then you, and then, and then you started connecting with other folks and that's where they would contribute. You know, have you heard of this guy? You had conversations yeah. with people. Have you heard of that guy? Maybe we should turn this into something. So I wasn't there at the very beginning. So who was like, we need a website and then let's do a journal. I mean, when I talked mm-hmm. to Eric, who probably most people listening to this would know by now, but Eric's the president mm-hmm. of Free Black Thought, Eric Smith, you know, he was like the journal, the Substack was just the obvious next step. But I don't know that it's that obvious, you know, I actually <laughs> don't know that it's that obvious to, to actually be like, let's become a publication. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I mean, an mm-hmm. informal one, but mm-hmm. still that's a big deal and it takes a lot of work. And so how did that, how did those conversations start to evolve? And when did you and the other guys sort of realize this is going to become even bigger than we thought? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I guess like the, I guess the way I've Eric and I met is probably because I ran into some of his writing when I was like looking for mm-hmm. alternative perspectives, you know, and then he and I started talking on Twitter and uh, we're just like, we need to form an organization, you know, yeah. we need to do something. I also had, I mean, my friend Dave, who, you know, well, mm-hmm. um, he's, he was actually along for the whole thing. Cause he and I have been friends from before all this. And so we'd always been chatting and talking and stuff and, he was always down for whatever, you know? And so then we met Mike a little later, just a little later. Actually, we met him because of something Eric published in Persuasion, that journal, online journal. And Mike then reached out to us and we were like, you know, hey, come on board, you know? Yeah. Um, And then the journal, that just happened. Actually, I remember like I was driving across texas with my kids in the back seat (laughs) and we were having a meeting and it was like eric and mike and me and dave and who else was there at the time that might have been it at the time and i don't know we just came up with it we were just like what the heck let's do it why not 
I think it was because we were meeting so many people on Twitter. I'm kind of making it this this up now at this point, <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I feel like it was because we were meeting so many people on Twitter who didn't who had something to say, but they didn't have anywhere to say it. In mm. a sense, you know what I mean? Like we were making friends on Twitter with like. So at this point, had you made and, a Twitter? You'd created we were, it. Twitter by account? now we've by now we're talking yeah we've created we've already made a twitter account yeah and yeah. a website or not account. a website yet gosh had we done a website by then did that only come around when you actually started doing the Substack or no that was before you're right yeah that was before yeah that was i guess that pretty much came with the twitter yeah okay because yeah. that's where you needed to that's where you placed the compendium that's a good point yep that's exactly okay. right yeah we, that's right that was sort of the home page. that was a place for it to live yeah yeah so those early months are kind of a blur we just decided we need to do everything we can to promote you know alternative voices and uh, that doesn't just mean conservative or something like that you know because there's mm -hmm. plenty of places that do that right if i'm not mistaken like schoon tv Right, you know them. I've, yes, I. I think I follow them on Twitter. Follow it. Follow him. Well, um, yeah, I guess there, there is a him. Read, There's a him, Curtis right. Schoon, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I don't and know that I've ever actually read anything on that website, but yeah. And then there's like the Blaze. I think that's pretty much like a black conservative outlet, right? No, that's that's a uh, Glenn Beck. What? Well, okay. Yeah. What am I thinking of then? Um, I'm um, thinking of something, but it's obviously the wrong thing. Had, there are. But, but there is a Jace, Jason Whitlock is on that, the blaze. That's, a, that's maybe that's why I think the blaze mm -hmm. is, but there's lots of, of other hosts that are white. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, okay. That's, um, that's what it, I don't, I ignore them, I guess. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I guess there's plenty of like that kind of stuff out there. So, you know, we thought we should, this should be as broadly heterodox as it could be. And that would include conservative thought, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, basically, we kind of thought it'll include anything, everything except like if Charles Blow could have written it, it shouldn't be part of our thing because because <laughs> that's already so well represented. Like you don't mm -hmm. need us. Mm -hmm. You don't need some organization to tell you how to find out what Charles Blow thinks. Like, you know, basically, you know, the New York Times has like five of him. Um, well, well what, yeah. I guess, what does that mean? Like if someone's like, who's Charles Blow or I don't know, can you give a couple, I mean, I know because I'm a part of Free Black Thought, but what are some of the like <laughs> parameters? What are some of the red lines that if somebody crosses in their writings, you're, we, we say, no, we're not publishing you. Gosh, that's, that's a really good question. Cause I don't think I've ever, we've never, we've never had that come up. Have we? Like, um, since I've been, since I've been around, we've never rejected something for that because it was too Charles Blowy. <laughs> no, I mean, those folks don't give us stuff, right? Right, they right. Don't. They so, don't approach yeah. us typically. I don't self-selection a little bit there, but generally speaking, you know, we, we're not going to post something that, um, elevates racial essentialism. That's kind of the Afro sure. pessimism that you were talking about before. Yep. I mean, look, we're, and we're, I'd be personally, we have to run it by everyone, right? But uh, I would be perfectly happy to, to uh, have someone write something about CRT as long as it was not the sort of just uh, what I feel is just sort of the dishonest mainstream 
as long as it was, wasn't promulgating the dishonest mainstream's narrative about it, that, oh, all CRT is doing is teaching history. Right, or, right. Or uh, another one that I've heard is like, well, all it's doing is explaining why, you know, black people are arrested at a greater rate than white people. Like, come on, that's not what it's doing. It's, yeah. <laughs> all you have to do is go read, what is the book by Delgado and Stefanczyk, uh, you know, the sort of introduction to critical race theory. I mean, they make it, they make it very clear the whole, they're taking on the entire liberal project. They're, you know, calling to completely rethink the sort of, the sort of uh, liberal uh, gradualist approach that is a, that is an individual rights based approach to justice, right? They're, they're, it's this sort of, it's this uh, group based approach um, that uh, rejects a lot of the sort of liberal conceptions of rights and, and uh, uh, justice as, as a, something that happens between individuals. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's much more than just explaining why there's disparities or something like that. And it's certainly not just teaching history. So anyway, I would be happy to publish someone if they were uh, writing on CRT in a very pro CRT way, as long as they weren't sort of saying the, the usual propaganda that you're going to get from a, Nicole Anna Jones or something, you know, which is extremely yeah. difficult to find, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, that's, we... why, that's why I love Randall Kennedy because, mm -hmm. like Randall Kennedy, he's one of my very, very favorite uh, African American writers, and he he sees he's he has a case for what's good about CRT, and then he has a case for what's uh, what's wrong with it, you know, mm -hmm. and he's completely honest about it and that's wonderful <laughs> and i can yeah. i can i can agree with his, the points he makes he says the, the things that he says he finds to be productive and good and uh yeah it's just it's he's not just trying to blow smoke up your ass the way a lot of folks do yeah so i guess all that to say is we have some some kind of guidelines and rules but as to what it takes to be published but there's always room for, like you said, we've, since I've been around, we've never rejected anything submitted no, to us. If yeah. people are writing honestly and in good faith, you can be pro reparations. You can be against reparations. Yeah. You can be a Republican. You can be a Democrat. You can be all over the spectrum. So if you're listening to this and you think you're a nobody, but yeah. you have an idea for something, I would encourage you to reach out to us and submit and absolutely please do especially, especially if you're open to any kind of critiques because we might say okay there's this you know maybe we would massage a certain part of it or we have a little critique but even that generally doesn't we don't do a lot of a lot of that at the journal yeah i mean i will be i'll be a stickler if someone's making a claim that ha just has no evidence backing it up i'm just like i i gotta see a link you gotta right. show me something to I, I will not print this. <laughs> if you're making this claim uh, and it's just like a factual claim and you can't provide some kind of evidence. So there've been some submissions that have been pruned pretty heavily. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In terms and, but, of substantive claims. But it, we always go back to the author and they always sign off on it. They always. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah you know, yeah. no, they're always like, yeah, you're right. Good point. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now that you're, waist deep in this space, constantly thinking about racial issues, talking about it, living in it. You know, the realities of your own family kind of force you to, in a sense. But on that note, 
I want to talk about a little bit about the way that you approach race, which you've hinted at a little bit when you talked hmm. about Thomas Chatterton Williams um, mm-hmm. being an Omni American. That's your your Twitter Twitter Tw- handle Twitter. handle, mm-hmm. and then also the theory of racelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk Mason? about that? Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit and explain to our audience kind of how you approach race now? So my Twitter handle Omni American that. That name, that word, comes from the writings of Albert Murray, great African-American theorist of the blues. What were his dates? 1916 to 2013. Um, Wow. Yeah, he almost lived 100 years. You just remember that. Yeah, well, yeah. That's what you do in my line of work. (laughs) Um, uh, He's instrumental in getting, like, jazz at Lincoln Center started. He's a good friend of, you know, Wynton Marsalis, good friend of Ralph Ellison. So he comes up, he has this theory, This his book, 1970 breakout book called The Omni-Americans. The idea is, he says, as he says in there, how does he say it? You know, there are so-called white people and so-called black people, but any fool can see that the white people aren't really white and the black people aren't really black, but they're all interrelated in one way or another. He says, that's what it is to be an American, is to be under this illusion that there's white people and black people. And of course, in 1970, there pretty much just were white and black mm-hmm. people, right? Like uh, this is just post um, the Hart uh, Keller Act or Hart Seller Act chain, you know, began to change the demographics in terms of Hispanics and Asians. But uh, he says, no, 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 we're, we're, we're one sort of big American family who have been at each other's throats for a couple hundred years, but we're all deeply intermixed and intertwined. And he says the culture that we created together, white and black together, um, although under very unequal terms, right? The black people had slavery and then Jim Crow, but, and yet the, the culture that we created together in this country is he says that it's it's a, he, he says it's a mulatto culture it's an inherently mixed and blended culture he said he talks about a mainstream comes from the flowing together of multiple tributaries or multiple wellsprings and he says that's what it is to be american and what's interesting is not race race doesn't tell you anything about a person or their behavior or what they care about he says what tells you about a person and their behavior and what they care about is their culture. And American culture is this unique culture that also contains these subcultures. There's wasps. And then there's the, as he would say at the time, there's the American Negro. And these represent subcultures within this overarching American culture, which forms the true basis of our identity. And again, he says again and again, race, he doesn't, he doesn't think race doesn't exist, but he just thinks it's the most uninformative and boring thing that there is about Mm -hmm. a person, you know? Mm -hmm. And he also thinks, of course, that race has been used by white supremacists to, um, as an excuse to subjugate some brown-skinned people and elevate white-skinned people. Okay, so that's why I'm an Omni-American. I insist on the sort of unity and diversity of the um, of the American identity that transcends black and white and transcends race. But then even more technically then, I'm had also, you, had you, had you read that book before 2019, 2020, or was that part uh, of your no, journey? That you had, was okay. part of my journey. That was actually that, you know, everyone had work to do after George Floyd and <laughs> mo- most of, especially us white folk and most of the, my white peers were reading Robin DiAngelo. White, white fragility. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, most of them were reading Robin D'Angelo and and flagellating themselves, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was reading Albert Murray and trying to see. Um, once we get done flagellating ourselves and talking about how evil everything is and how black people uh, like have never uh, like how it's just been pure unadulterated hell to be black in this country and there's and it's still 1963 or whatever it's not even that it's 1950 you know um once we get done with all that can we also find some message that speaks to what we share together Mm -hmm. white Mm -hmm. and black as american citizens you know and to what we've created together can we acknowledge some of that um, and so that's what Albert Murray does for me. Yeah. And it's where it's minimizing race, maximizing this focus on the culture, but then also, yeah, racelessness. I mean, I'm also raceless. I don't think there's a good biological basis for race. So you could, the technical term for that is race skepticism. I'm skeptical that there's any such thing as a race, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm skeptical. I really don't think there's a white race and a, black race, mm-hmm. etc. And then I'm a eliminativist, which means that I want to then because I'm skeptical, if there's any such thing as race, I want to eliminate race, I want to stop talking about it, because I think that when race is invoked, it's invoked strictly for purposes of power. I think race was invented, so that uh, what we now call white people, <laughs> could people who named themselves white people could have power over a newly demarcated race of black people. And I think that in today's discourse, when it's invoked, it's invoked to gain power. And that now it's invoked often, not just by white people, but also by black people, you know, Mm -hmm. activists. Um, There, there's an appeal to race, which is implicitly an appeal to some kind of power and, uh, you know, usually by browbeating oppressors with how oppressive they are. Have you brought this to your family members, white or black? What do they think? I have not won converts. <laughs> <laughs> not a one? Not a single one? No, I'm afraid not. Yeah, no, it's really funny. It's, uh, it's, I mean, people are just in their different, they're in different worlds with this. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. one, one time my uh, father-in-law, you know, 84-year-old black man grew up in Florida under Jim Crow. You know, he said something to the effect, he said to me, how did he put it? He said, I'm sure glad your kids won't have to go through life as black so that they can escape all the racist bullshit. He was, in a sense, saying that he was glad that they could pass and I was like, I do, I do not want my kids passing. I do not want my kids taking on a white identity. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Nothing would be more horrifying to me than if, like, in 10 years after college, they come to me and they're like, you know, we're white. You know what I mean? Like that, <laughs> good Said God. no biracial so, person ever living in modern, living in modern times. I've never <laughs> heard of that happening. You only yeah, tried to yeah. pass as a form of survival back in the day. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, and and that's what he's see that that shows you where he he is. Right. He grew up in that world. Right. And he's like looking at them and he's like, thank God that they can pass and not have to put up with all the bullshit. And 
from my which perspective. Which isn't true, by the way. Like your son can't pass. He's clearly- no, he can't. He can't. No, he, he can't pass. No, <laughs> my daughter can. But, but yeah, no, I was like, no, 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 no. I want, I please, no, no, no. I want them to, I want them to have a very deep, rich understanding of the sort of sub-American ethnic traditions that they come out of. You know, they Mm -hmm. have these, uh, on one side of their family, they are part of this American sort of sub-ethnicity of the African-American, the black American, you know, which has its own, it has its own norms and traditions and created its own art forms. and, And it did this in dialogue with and with pressure from and, and pushing back against the, also the wasp, sort of subculture, sub, you know, American subculture. But, and I want them then to also have a sense of the, the sort of so-called, you know, European American side too. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. my father's grandparents came from, you know, Germany uh, looking for whatever, a better life, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, but I, by God, I don't want them like identifying as white <laughs> and nor would yeah. I want them like just simple mindedly saying like, Oh, we're just black. Like, it's complex, but I, I'm not. I'm also not going to force racelessness on them. I'm not going to tell them you you don't have a race, and that's the that's how it is for you. That's it's going to be up to them. You know, they're going to have to figure this out on their own. I I will tell them this is an option. I will say, your daddy thinks that race is bullshit, and that we're all raceless, and I'll explain what I mean by that. But I'll say it's up to you to decide mm-hmm. what you mm-hmm. want to be. Just don't tell me you're white. Just don't tell me you're white. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's good. I think that and. For people who might be interested in exploring this more, they can look up Dr. Sheena Mason. She's published yeah. on the, of course, on our journal. She has her own website, her own Twitter page, all that kind of good yeah. stuff. So look her up if you are wanting to learn a little bit more about this. And we're getting close to wrapping up this interview now, but I do want to hit a couple things first. Just yeah. really, well, it doesn't have to be quickly. It can be as long as you want. But I do want to mention your book, Belief in Cold, oh, Rethinking yeah. Roman Religion, you're, you're just, the description of the book says, Belief in Cold argues that belief isn't uniquely Christian, but was central to ancient Roman religion. Drawing on cognitive the- theory, Jacob Mackey shows that despite having nothing to do with salvation or faith, belief underlay every aspect of Roman religious practices. And there's a bit more. Emotions, individual and collective cult actual action, ritual norms, social reality, and social power. This seems kind of relevant to today, perhaps. Hmm. I haven't read mm-hmm. your I haven't read your your book yet. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, but uh, makes me a bad bad podcast host. But um, <laughs> I, I would not expect you to read it. It's long, s- tedious. You know, don't yeah. say that. Come on, you're supposed to be selling it right now. Um, but I I see some of these things, and maybe I'm wrong. So please steer me in the right direction about how a lot of people compare kind of the culture, kind of the the, the radical left culture to this kind of religious mm. belief that has mm. collective cult mm-hmm. actions. It has ritual. There are rituals, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, it's about social power. Is there a connection mm. between what's going on now in, in your book? Wow. Yeah. You know, I hadn't, I haven't really thought that through, but you know, on some level, yeah, sure. There is because um, it's at the level of, uh, it's at a level of sort of abstraction. So, okay. Why did I write the book? It's because all these, for like 150 years, people in my field have been saying that there's no such thing as belief in Roman religion, that Romans didn't have belief. They'll even go so far as to say 
they did not, they, there was no such thing as belief as a mental state. Like you couldn't believe back then, you know, mm. which is insane. And they would say that belief was invented in, by Christianity, that like belief is, is a new mental state that came into being with Christianity. That's what they'll say. Mm. So I was arguing against that and saying, this is all nonsense and arguing both on theoretical grounds and on evidentiary grounds that um, <clears throat> that belief has absolutely everything to do with Roman religion. It's just not the same as Christian belief. There's no uh, set, there's no sort of question of belief, uh, getting salvation through belief, you know, um, mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. like sola fides, you know what I mean? Uh, mm -hmm, Luther, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, sola scriptura, right? Yep. Sola gratia, sola fides, you know, there's no, there's no such thing as faith as a way of, of like attaining or earning salvation, but there's certainly belief in gods and belief in the efficacy of cult acts. And on the on like the biggest, most abstract grounds, one of the arguments I make in the book is that what it, like one way to think of a culture is that it's a package of certain traits that include beliefs and norms, you know? So beliefs are usually beliefs like about what is, like they're propositions, like Jupiter is the king of the gods, right? And then a norm is usually some about what you should do. It's a like we should sacrifice to Jupiter on, you know, whatever, the first mm. day of the month. Cultures, like a religious culture is a kind of package of beliefs and norms the norms in the uh, package, one of the things that the norms do is they allocate power. So like a, a given culture will allocate power to different people for different reasons and different sorts of powers, right? It'll grant, it'll say, we hereby recognize you as priest and we allocate to you the power to do this, this, and this. But we also put this prohibition on you. If you're a priest, you can't do this. You can't get married, right? So um, one way to think of sort of cultures is as these packages of beliefs and norms that distribute power and create relation, create hierarchies of power and relationships based on the, that those powers among the uh, adherents to the culture. And so I'm making this kind of argument as a way to think about Roman religion, um, but you certainly could do that to think about like wokeism, right? Is that what you mm -hmm. had in yeah. mind? Like yeah. it's this, mm -hmm. the, the, there's some sense in which it's this, it's a loose package. These packages are always like leaky at the edges, right? There's stuff that sort of can fall out and it's, and there's other stuff that can kind of get in. Um, but yeah, one of the things that it does do is try to sort of reallocate. It has a, it has a whole theory about the, the normative structure of the world, how it should be, right? It says the normative structure of the world that we currently live in is, is evil, right? We live mm -hmm. in a white supremacist world where power has been, has been you know, allocated to people based on uh, skin color and ancestry and this kind of thing. And our job is to completely our package of norms says that our job is to completely undermine and dismantle and overturn this old existing set of power relations. And so, so some people would say that they want to institute a whole new set of power relations in its place. Right. Mm -hmm. These are the, these folks strike me as a little more paranoid that they want to like flip it. Right. They want to yeah. like, um, I don't know that I totally buy that, that I, that I believe that, but I tend to think that the, 
the impulse, the normative impulse there is more egalitarian, at least in theory. Like if you ask them, they would say we want to create completely equal playing ground uh, field, right? Where there is no power hierarchy anymore. Mm -hmm. We're trying to dismantle structures of power. And so that is like, that is the, the package of beliefs and norms. There's a pack, a set of beliefs about the way the world is. And I think it's, it has some truth, but I think it's inaccurate. The wokest kind of belief system, it it has, there's some truth, but it's also inaccurate. And then the, the, the normative side of it is, uh, is that you know we see the power relations as having been structured in a certain way in the world, and we want to dismantle those in the interest of flattening them. That's what I that's what I tend to think um, they want. But you might see it differently. You might see that they want to just flip it and put someone else in power, right? I, I think that I think you're right that if you were to ask that the, it would be more of that that equity language egalitarian, yeah. but. Ultimately, that's, I mean, we know that's not what would happen. Maybe if some of them actually drew out their conclusions all the way, you know, all the way, they would say, well, it'd be mostly egalitarian, Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. you know, if if somebody was honest. And in the meantime, there's going to be a lot of non-egalitarian stuff that happens just as a matter of making amends and fixing things, right? Right, right. And that's what I think, that's what I think really freaks people out is when they see well, you hear the word kulak thrown around, like you see a lot of people who are anti-woke saying we are the new kulaks, right? Um, you know, these are the people that like uh, Stalin, you know, blamed, like labeled as this kind of bourgeois that was hoarding all the wealth. All they really were is like slightly better off peasants in like Ukraine. A prosperous you know? peasant, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you could then like just sacrifice them, just just completely destroy them and take all their shit, you know, like mm-hmm. that. And so I think people worry that that's what it is in practice. It's mm-hmm. going to, you're mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. people who have under the old order are just going to be basically, you know, wiped out and all their shit's going to be taken and given to the yeah. people who don't have, I think that's what people. Are yeah. yeah. I think there's some legitimacy to that concern. Not, not necessarily from a like fascist government coming in and doing it. No, or just no. from, out of control civilians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess we kind of see that a little bit with like Antifa running mm-hmm. sections of Portland for like mm-hmm, years mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. That's that on like a small scale. I, I think you can see it though in a, <clears throat> in some government stuff like um, when I think it was the Biden administration tried to make certain kinds of farm relief tried to say that, that it should be available to like black farmers first or something like that, mm-hmm. like preferentially. And uh, I believe this was like shot down by some kind of federal, you know, district court or something. And, and they point, they were pointing out just how like it, it sounds really nice. Like you're trying to make up for past bad treatment and yes, black farmers have been treated poorly by the federal government in the past where white farmers have been pre- given preferential treatment. But this person, you know, the judge who shot it down sort of pointed out that if you start doing things in this sort of preferential way where you preferentially give to some to like make up for this, that, and the other thing, you're actually going to end up, the ramifications of injustice of this are going to be so deep and they're going to like, they're going to ramify through our system. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm, again, mm -hmm. it sounds good at first, but then 
what actually will end up happening is it's going to mean this has to happen and then this thing has to happen and then this thing has to happen. And yeah. all these poor, all these people are going to be sidelined who are actually often maybe more needy, like mm-hmm. they actually have more demonstrated need, right? You know, but they're going to be thrown to the back of the line because they're just Asian instead of, you know, black or yep. something like that. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Good points. Good points. So yep. just as a reminder to our audience, his book that he's terrible at selling and promoting is uh, Belief in Cult Rethinking Roman Religion. And now I want to hit you with our speed round, 10 questions, and then we'll give you your final, a chance to put any final thoughts out there before we we wrap it up. So here's the speed round. I got 10 questions for you. Um, Answer them as quickly as you can. In your opinion, is the word Negro a slur? No. Do you think you could kill a person in self-defense? That would be really hard. Probably so. You know, if it's him or me, and I said him, right? Probably so. Yeah. Jordan or LeBron? I'm not into basketball. You can't pick one? Jordan. (laughs) What sport would you like to see in the Olympics that currently isn't? This is so sad. I don't know enough about the Olympics to know what's not in it. (laughs) Okay. What's what's an eclectic sport you think is fun? Fun to watch. That's probably not in the Olympics. I lo- I really like tennis, but that's already in there, right? And it is. It is in there. Yeah. See, surprisingly, yeah. but like I think baseball I like, okay, okay. isn't baseball. Okay, baseball. I'm kind of on a baseball kick with my yeah. son. I think baseball. they took it out. What is your hottest take? Oh my god, I'm terrible at hot takes. I know my that's why. Take. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my god. Okay, here's a hot take. The current news about the total cratering of teen mental health is exactly what you should expect if you've just spent the last 10 years telling all the young people of color that they're oppressed telling the white young white kids that they're the cause of the oppression because of their privilege telling them that the world is going to end because of climate change and then giving them a smartphone with tiktok on it there's a hot take. <laughs> and locking them down for a couple of years in your yeah, house. Actually, yeah, yeah, add that. Add that. Give them a cell phone with TikTok during a COVID lockdown. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's your favorite cartoon movie? Does Team America World Police count? It's like little puppets, kind of. I don't think it counts. Ah, oh, darn it. Okay. Cartoon. Uh, Snow White. What is the best part of waking up? <laughs> coffee (laughs) who is the most underrated black intellectual Ooh, underrated wow okay hold on hold on hold on gosh i think all the everyone i love is is rated well okay now let's go with uh let let me go with albert murray actually okay let me go with albert murray he's appreciated but i don't think his true genius has been recognized actually i really don't not as widely Uh, as it should be what is the wildest conspiracy theory that you low-key believe is true Oh, shit. (laughs) Come on, punk rocker. I know you got some. (laughs) Okay, the wildest conspiracy theory that I low-key believe is true. I mean, at this point, I can't say lab leak hypothesis anymore, can I? Because it's like, it seems pretty obvious now. Yeah, it's not a conspiracy. (laughs) But maybe that is the wildest. I mean... You're pretty milk toast if that's the wildest one you believe. <laughs> that's the thing. I'm not a conspiracy theory kind of person. Yeah. So um, I'm sorry. I'm really boring at this because I'm not into conspiracy. I'm allergic no, to conspiracy fine. theory. Okay. No, I'll give you one. Like, actually, it's one that I came up with because I started to research 
how bad was the Democrats' behavior in 2016 when Trump, when Trump won? Because, I mean, we know how bad Trump's behavior was when he lost in 2020, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he began what I view as an all-out nuclear assault on our electoral process. That's just mm-hmm. my opinion. Um, I started to look back at, at 2016, and I saw, and this is a conspiracy theory, I think, Hillary Clinton was trying to actually do something similar in 2016, because here's what you had. She got no fewer than two constitutional scholars, one from Columbia, one from, uh, I think, NYU to write op-eds in the New York Times and the New York Post, saying that electors could and should be faithless and vote against Trump to vote her in. She, mm-hmm. uh, there, there were also actual electors who were given op-ed space in the New York Times and the New York Post saying, I intend to be faithless, right? Mm-hmm. Not only that, at the same time, there's um, she sort of let it be known in a very sneaky way that she thought his election was illegitimate because of the Russian interference, right? So it mm-hmm. wasn't just coming right out and saying, it's, it's illegitimate. The Russians interfered. End of story. It wasn't that. But it was like she put the bug in people's ear. And so like on some level, I truly believe that in 2016, she was trying to see if she could get the will of the voters overturned, you know, the mm-hmm. will of the voters as reflected in our flawed electoral college system, right? Because she did win the plural, the popular. We have the system we have, and she wanted to overthrow it. That's mm-hmm. what I think. That's my that's my conspiracy theory. Okay, fair enough, yeah. fair enough. And uh, number 10 is... You're probably them. like, you're like, can't you have a better one? Come on, man. Yeah, better uh, conspiracy. It's fine. It's, fine. You need it's me hard to... to come up with them on the spot, too. <laughs> it is, yeah. Okay. Na- name a movie you really like that got panned by the audience. So panned most people don't like the, the movie, audience. but you do. You think it's a good movie. I only I like am making the dis- I-, I am making the distinction between <laughs> normal uh, the normal audience like normal people and critics. Okay, so a movie normal people don't like that you yeah. think is great. Man, you ask really hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think all the movies, my very favorite movies, I think are well liked, like Casablanca, Clockwork yeah. Orange, Blade Runner. You know, like yeah. Okay, okay, maybe this one, maybe this one, Thin red line i don't know that that was a popular movie you i think know the people movie? like that movie i've never seen it but i think people liked it it's a classic Terrence isn't Mal- it? by terrence malick it came out 20 years ago um it's it's about like island warfare during world war ii and it's like based on the iliad and it's one of the most poetic and beautiful things and horrifying things i ever saw okay all right. I don't well, think people you... liked it. It's Terrence Malick. No one really like. No one really watches Terrence Malick. The critics like Terrence Malick. It no has an eighty really percent from the critics and the audience. Huh. It's a rare okay. movie where the critics agree with the audience, but that's okay, hmm. Mackie. If that's if okay. that's your, yeah. If, yeah. <laughs> you just have refined taste, I guess. <laughs> uh, or either that, or I have the most vulgar tastes because I just you... like whatever everyone likes. But you're an intellectual and you're a man of the people, right? Because this is a movie that everybody <laughs> seems to agree on. But you made it through the 10. You made it through the 10 speed round questions. Do you have any oh, final good. thoughts? Anything else that you want to say, get off your chest? Maybe your hopes and dreams for FBT or just something. It doesn't even have to be related to FBT. You have a thought about something. You just need to put it out. Put it out in the universe. Yeah. You know, at the moment, um, not really. I mean, uh, Hopes. Let me say something about maybe hopes and dreams for FBT. Okay. 
you know, I, I mean, I'm so impressed by the way you've been doing this podcast. Uh, don't talk I, about me. Come on now. Well, we've all pitched <laughs> in, but I mean, you are the voice. You are the voice of the FBT podcast, and you are the genius behind the structuring of the interviews and the recording and the editing and the whole nine yards, right? So it's really you. So I'm so impressed by that, and I uh, would like to see this be one more step towards FBT sort of becoming a more what's the word like visible and sort of dominant in the culture kind of uh, institution, you know, and I, mm -hmm. as, as it does that, I would like to see it spreading out. It's sort of uh, becoming more diverse in a sense, diversifying, right? Like I would love to see the, uh, the journal take on a much broader range of voices. And I think this podcast is actually going to lead the way forward for that for us. That's, <laughs> well, what now, do you think? now I feel awkward, but <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 what I got right there. Yeah. It's like okay. I'm so uh, impressed and uh, and heartened and uh, delighted. And I'm sorry that I'm like your lamest guest ever. No, so. no, not at all, not <laughs> at all. You're so humble. So yes, folks, this is Professor Doctor Man of the People, intellectual <laughs> Jacob L. Mackey, published author, thinker. One of the founders of Free Black Thought. So FBT sure, journal editor. Yep, know. FBT journal editor. With be you. Sure, be sure yeah. to follow him. He's Omni American at Twitter. Yeah. Omni on, underscore. Omni underscore American. On Twitter, yeah. that's his handle. And of course, you can always reach out to us via our website or on, mm -hmm. on Twitter. If you're somebody who wants to see about getting published with us, or maybe mm -hmm. even you're not a writer, but you have great ideas and you want to come on the podcast. This is, mm -hmm. we're, we're the place for you. So thank you, Jake. And I'll see you on the next Free Black Thought Call. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thank you, Connie. It was fun. Bye.